This week on a lively experiment, a new twist in the IGT Twin River controversy. And it's official, the impeachment inquiry moves forward. A lively experiment is generously underwritten by. For more than 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program in Rhode Island PBS. Joining us this week, Don Roach, political contributor, Wendy Schiller, political science professor at Brown University, and former state representative, Dan Riley. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lively. I'm Jim Hummel. The increasing war of words between Governor Raimondo and Twin River Management went up a couple of notches this week. The company's president accused the governor's chief of staff of threatening consequences if Twin River opposed the IGT contract. Dan, you almost need a scoreboard to keep track of all this. I don't know if we've had you on since we've been talking about the IGT contract. To set the table, Brett Smiley, chief of staff, has a conversation with Mark Crisofuli. They have different versions, but it just doesn't look good. This is all spilling out in the public now. Yeah, this was a particularly bizarre angle to the story. The threat, the nature of the threat, the conversation. My first takeaway of it uh, from it was that uh, it, it shows you, first of all, how intertwined Twin River is with the state having nothing to do with this contract just the nature of the the revenue and how we require them to do so much they're a real business partner of the state they're not just a vendor of the state and you know that's creating problems like this when the regulator is also getting hundreds of millions of dollars from the person or entity they're regulating it's going to lead to these types of conversations right and whether they're appropriate or not I think remains to be seen I know this week they said oh the state police aren't going to investigate it I don't know if it's something that would be worth investigating from that standpoint but it just shows you I mean that's the type of conversation that can happen on a routine basis even if it had nothing to do with the IGT contract controversy and it shows that I mean, we, we have a problem with the way that's structured. Yeah, you know, I just, I don't like stories where the chief of staff or anybody, you know, bullies or yells at or threatens somebody. And it could have been that there was a difference of interpretation of the language that was used. You know, Brett Smiley was a, you know, rough and tumble in the mayoral campaign, you know, and I, I think that he knows how to get things done. However, you know, I think Governor Romano's got to be careful. We have a couple of years left in her term. You know, the economy could go. She's going to have to shepherd a lot of things through this state for the next couple of years. I don't think she can afford, you know, with this issue in particular to make it look like it's an inside job with sort of a, a threatening and bullying chief of staff. Make it on principle. This is a better deal because. And this is just distracting from that effort. Yeah, and as I was reading through uh, Chris Afuli's version of events, um, it just felt a lot uh, like um, when I was reading through kind of like the Trump transcript, except <laughs> even a little bit more harsh. And, you know, if you think about the remote Meaning, do this or there would be this. Re repercussions, right. correct. Um, and so it just makes me feel like when I was thinking like Trump administration, Raimondo administration, <laughs> maybe they're not that different. Well, that's that may be uh, that may, may be news. The larger thing of the IGT contract, I don't know. I heard Senate Finance uh, uh, Chairman uh, Bill Connolly say, "Look, we have enough smart people to figure this out." Blake Filippi in the House has said we may need some outside people. If you were sitting in that chamber now, I know you sat through finance and a lot of stuff. As you read this, does the whole "What do we do? Who do we give it to?" Do you think they need independent people coming through to, to weed through it? You know, it's a contract worth hundreds of millions of dollars, billions 
millions of dollars over its term. I think that there's probably some level of outside help they do need, just as a matter of course. I don't, and I think that should have been done at the very beginning. This isn't the type of thing that prudently would be done, I don't want to say behind closed doors because by its nature it would be, but uh, you know, done just by two people agreeing in an office at the State House. okay, we should agree to these terms and let's do it. There's too much money on the line. I think the, the legislature doesn't have that ca professional capacity in-house. I think it probably would be the prudent thing to do. I also don't want to, you know, this to turn into an, like an HP consulting contract that goes on for 20 years and we spend more money trying to figure out what to do than we would if we actually did it. Uh, but I, I think it would be prudent for them to bring some level of professional expertise in on this. And a 20-year contract, I mean, in this day and age, right? Yeah, and I think, I wonder if it is like a Hail Mary uh, to somehow get the, the, the no-bid process reopened somehow um, with IGT. Um, it could be that, so you kind of like bring to light there could be some improprieties within the Raimondo uh, administration and then maybe people will clamor for, you know, open this process up because they feel like it, it's, it's never going to be opened up. Dan makes a great point though, Twin River, you know, it's the third largest, they always say third largest revenue source and if there's this with the governor, you want the very best out of your company there that's making money for you. There seems to have been some discrepancies and the governor really has doubled down with some pretty harsh words for Twin River. So you wonder what that's going to mean for the long run because they got to continue to live and coexist. They do. And I think that the fundamental problem is that the economy in Rhode Island is not big enough to minimize the benefit from gambling, right? I mean, that's the problem. Gambling, the lottery, whatever, way, you know, sports betting, whatever you want to call it, whatever scope you want to uh, put on the story, it, it's bet, it would be better if we had a stronger economy where the government wasn't so dependent on this revenue. And I think that's, that's the, the heart of the problem here. Dan, it's been a couple of weeks since Jeff Britt was indicted. And so now we look toward, we're moving into a session pretty shortly. And the, you know, IGT, other issues. How do you see the speaker going into this? Do you think it's going to be yesterday's news? Do you think he's been weakened? How is this going to affect the actual governing going into the new session? Well, I think it's first going to depend on what Jeff Britt does. I mean, does he take a plea or does he try to go to trial on this? Um, and, of course, there's the regular machinations that go into that and whether or not that's the right or wrong decision. I think the interesting thing, based on the charges, is this is the first time there's actually been a criminal, I mean, to my knowledge, the, there's been a criminal case made out of this uh, statute with regards to independent expenditures and campaign coordination. So there's an open question on a lot of different fronts there, and, and so I think that may incentivize him to go to trial on this. And if that does, I think it becomes a much bigger problem for the speaker and his leadership team, just because of what happens, right? You know, you're going to have um, evidence come out of trial. They're going to have exculpatory evidence given over to him. They're going to put people on the stand. They're going to see everything that the state had. You're going to see all sorts of things that you wouldn't see if he just simply took a plea. And because that money laundering charge is there, um, you know, there's the prospect of substantial prison time. So that's going to factor into it. Um, but back to your question, I think for the speaker and the leadership team, it's really going to depend on what happens in his criminal case. And, of course, that's something that's going to go into the session no matter what. Yeah, and it's it's state court. It's not federal court. Right. Federal court would move a lot quicker. Right. You wonder whether they would even, if he goes to trial, mm -hmm. whether that would even happen before the session's over. I mean, state oh, court no doesn't way. move yeah. quickly on these things. 
Yeah, I just, I don't understand. He's a speaker is powerful. Nick Maniello has done some good things for this state. I think the car tax, he fought. You can argue about the financials, but it does help people at the lowest income levels. And I think he's still in the job because he believes in Rhode Island, trying to help Rhode Island. But he gets entangled in all of these difficulties, these controversies, right? The chiropractor and the box full of votes in the trunk in the last election <laughs> or two, two elections ago. And now this, and you think, why do you need all this? You don't need all this. You know, you don't want to be Gordon Fox, right? You want to be. Gordon Fox tried hard also, but then was ultimately convicted of, of corruption. So why put yourself in that situation when you don't have to be? I still don't understand how he gets himself into these uh, situations. But, but speaking of Fox, maybe this is just how we do business in Rhode Island. It's corruption. And so maybe this is just another domino along the way to a Mattiello criminal investigation, conviction, resignation, whatever you want to call it. This is just how we do politics in Rhode Island. Well, I don't know, because he's really, he distances mm -hmm. himself. Yeah. But what's interesting is, so Bob Correnti speaking on half of Jeff, behalf of Jeff Britt is, I'm not going to be the fall guy in this. Right. So if it's not the speaker, who is the right. fall right. guy? And remember, in Massachusetts, the Senate president stepped down, not because he was implicated in any wrongdoing, but because his boyfriend was, and it was determined that it was too close to him and his leadership team, and that there were allegations of pressure being put on members of the state Senate there. And there was just this culture of, of corruption at the highest levels, but not related to the principal. But it was close enough that they said, listen, you don't have the confidence of the caucus, and he resigned as Senate president. You know, there could be a situation here where there's nothing related to a criminal inquiry of Nick Mattiel or anything like that. No one's alleging that now right. anyways. But it could just be that there's too much going on too close to him that the ability to govern is really uh, impinged upon and, and, you know, he can't do anything at that point. Yeah, I mean, just building on that point, in New York State, for example, there was well known, uh, I, uh, originally from New York State, and it was well known that the leadership in, this, in the Senate and the House, Republican and Democrat, was pretty corrupt, and they were in power for a very long time, and then they all went down, and they all, almost all of them went yeah. to jail, and one of them was a son that had abused the power of a father who was in a leadership position, but they are all gone, and it took a long time, but it is true that there is, you know, it's more difficult to get away with what we think of as typical Rhode Island corruption than in the past. But I agree also that Maniello has kept himself pretty far away, at least that you can tell. He's, he's using his power to help people, but there's no direct evidence of sort of extortion uh, in the case, as we saw, I think, with Gordon Fox. So I think that may not happen, but I agree that, that it will become harder and harder for people to want to follow somebody when they don't know what's next around the corner. You may no, I was going to say, do we really think that Britt did this, if it's true, on his own? And if even if he had the idea, why would he say to himself, like, you know what, I can't do this because this is wrong? And so, you know, and is Mattiello kind of creating that culture of, hey, folks, don't do anything like that's just unscrupulous or illegal? And that just didn't, doesn't appear to be the case. Didn't. So the other thing, the other point you were talking about and that Wendy alluded to, you know, we've got a big problem with the economy is eventually going to turn and this reliance on gaming. And I wonder, because you looked at those figures all the time during House Finance, mm. if you can't plug that revenue slot, then what are you going to do? Are they eventually going to have to, I mean, heaven forbid, 
bring spending under control? Is that possible? Well, and remember, we went through the Great Recession without the pressure of the Massachusetts casinos, right. which, you know, when, when we go through the next recession and our state spending really takes a hit, or our state revenue really takes a hit, one thing we're going to have to experience we didn't before is Encore in Boston, MGM in Springfield, Plainville slots, and all these places that are, we know for a fact, right? Encore opens, we see the largest month-to-month -month decrease in revenue at Twin River. It's not going to get better, you know. Uh, there's going to be some people who go up there and then decide to come back, but look at the next month, continuing to drop off in revenue. And so whether or not we're in recession or the economy's booming, I, I think that the peak days of, of revenue uh, for gaming in Rhode Island for the budget are behind us. And unless something substantially changes, we just don't have the people, we don't have the income to support it, and there's too much competition in the market. I mean, just look at what Connecticut experienced a decade ago. Um, so that's going to put tremendous pressure on the third largest revenue source. I, I, I always love the evolution of the English language. Now it's gaming. It's gambling. <laughs> it's gambling. And people, you know, it's, just, it's you can do what you want with your own money. But we also know that, you know, the temptation of the lottery and gambling hits people typically who can't afford it more than it hits people who can. And it's just a bad practice to be so dependent on revenue that it can be harmful to the individuals that are, quote unquote, spending the money. Is there any euphemism for smoking marijuana that we... Uh... Uh, that's not my bailiwick. I'm just telling you that I... <laughs> not just, for I, personal I like, experience. I, I'm not criticizing the fact that you call it gaming. I just think it's very a, a, a sort of a sign of the impact of gambling being normalized in society because and state dependency, not just us, Missouri, you know, all these other states in the country, Louisiana, everybody's dependent on gambling. Because for in revenue. 1995, which is not that long ago, a generation ago, they had those five proposals, remember, and it got just absolutely voted down. We don't want any casinos. You know, it's that the, the lawsuit that you, that the GOP and, you know, we've talked about before about should the sports mobile betting have gone to a, a referendum. It's all process rather than substance. If somebody put that on the ballot right now, I have no doubt that it would pass. Mm -hmm. But that was process, right? Well, yeah, the only caveat to that is the under the Constitution, if it, if it has to be approved in every locality in which it's done, there is the chance that there are some towns in Rhode Island that wouldn't approve uh, sports, mobile so what, sports gambling. you take your phone from Charlestown well, to Warwick? I mean, well, it really creates sports. a situation. It's that, like no texting and driving. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's hard to enforce. You know, you know, it, 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 you're allowed to use your phone for game, gambling except uh, in a town <laughs> which hasn't approved it. Also, I mean, the question is, is it then, does that nullify the statewide approval if it doesn't receive the approval in all of the cities or towns? And so, that lawsuit is continuing, right? That lawsuit's continuing. And, I mean, they, look, the Constitution was, you know, that, that aspect of it was written before for cell phones were used for, for anything, let alone gambling, right? So, And that, and that yeah. broader issue of uh, state uh, localities being able to nullify the state or contradict the state, you know, this is becoming a big issue, not to switch topics, in gun control across the whole country. You know, in Pittsburgh, where the shooting was, locality adopted more stringent restrictions mm -hmm. on some gun ownership, assault weapons, but the state law had a provision that said you can't do that. You can't go more controlling on guns than we are at the state mm -hmm. level, and it got struck down but by a state the judge. doesn't always trump the state? No, no, it's the state level, oh, the state, state level the trumping the locality. And since yeah. we have so many towns mm -hmm. and local governments in such a small state, you can imagine if that principle starts to happen, what kind of reaction there well, would be. Well, I mean, generally speaking, the, the, the state law supremacy is, is near universal. This is just an exception written into the Constitution that creates precisely the inverse for that reason. Because if it wasn't there, then whatever the state would say would go. 
So then they said in the Constitution, listen, no, for this, there is going to be local control over it, but every, nearly everywhere else. All right. We uh, are uh, taping this on Friday, November 1st. That's a big day in Providence because this is the official takeover of the state of the Providence school system. I don't think we're going to see any seismic shift in the, in the next couple of days or weeks. Don, we've talked about uh, this before. The commissioner now gets to come in and hopefully we'll see change. I don't know how yeah. long it's going to take. And I'm questioning if if the change will be real or will this just be more of the same of, you know, smart, educated people trying to fix Providence but not really leveraging the power of the parents or the students who have asked to be involved uh, in the process of kind of like selecting the next superintendent and they've been shut out. And to me, that just feels like this is just more of the same that we've seen before. It's just a different group of people trying to change the city. Again, we've got to leverage the power of the parents and the students, get them involved, make them feel like they have a voice uh, in the school, and it doesn't feel like we're doing that. The superintendent was supposed to be on board today. I realize sometimes getting somebody away in the middle of a school year could be tough, but that it, it feels to me like, a little bit of a setback like you were going to have this transformational superintendent there maybe they'll come on at the beginning of the year but I'm sure the commissioner would have liked to see it play out differently. True but as you suggest it's November 1st so you know you're not going to make any changes in this school year so I think someone coming January 1st getting to know the system getting to know everybody and then proposing changes over the summer with input is probably as best you were going to get anyway but the other thing that I think is we have some sort of systematic challenges that are greater in Providence in particular than in a lot of other places language skills in particular we have a, a large immigrant community from all over lots of different countries and we have certainly a large Latino population we have English second language we have all sorts of issues that it doesn't matter who the superintendent is it doesn't even matter if the state controls the system. These are things that are institutionally structural that we have to figure out how to deal with that are, is going to be productive and beneficial to the students and the parents. I don't see the change in government control really tackling some of these forces that are outside government. I mean, you know, what are the best practices across the country for this? Other other states have this issue as well. And you want people to be well school, you know, trained for the workforce. They go to college, if they don't go to college, you want to have the best workforce possible coming out of high school. And if you don't get at these issues and also people's living conditions, are they safe? Is there food security? I, th I thought it was terrific that we're going to basically feed children in in school. I think that's really important. You cannot learn if you're hungry. You know, I think all of us would put our tax towards feeding children in school so I think that's a terrific thing and it's getting at some of the problems in educational achievement that aren't government induced you know I think that uh, I mean I, I agree with everything that's been said right you know we're, we're changing the organization at the top that doesn't change anything until the people in place in, in policies people you have to put the people there and, and we obviously don't have the leadership there yet I think it's gonna be interesting to see what happens with the contract negotiation the power of the state has the city doesn't um, but by and large everything else the state doesn't bring to the table that much compared to the city, right? You know, you can bring in good people. You have some powers under the law to do things. But, you know, I think the real shift is going to be the political accountability that now comes with this because now the governor is on the hook for the performance of the Providence school system, mm -hmm. and that's very different. 
And this this will serve as a proxy for other service. You know, what can the state do in education in other districts that may be struggling? What can the state do in just other services? Right. This will be like DMV, like DCYF. It's a service that. Joe and Josephine voter on the street get, they understand, they send their kids to school, and now it's go they're going to use this as a proxy for how well the governor is doing. Um, and so there's a lot riding on, on you know, the success here. Okay. We uh, have a lot to talk about with impeachment, but let's do this. Let's do uh, outrageous and kudos, and then we will get into the national. Don, what do you have for us this week? Sure, sure. So my outrage of the week is just Halloween trick-or-treaters. Uh, so at my house uh, yesterday, we went out, and so we left some candy <laughs> and uh, a pumpkin little thing that's to hold the candy. And... Um, by the time we got back, all of the candy was gone, which we expected, but they also took the pumpkin. <laughs> and Those rogues. And, and I'm just like, why would you, why would you do that? And, um, the New Jersey plastic, kids outraged by that? Was it a yes. plastic pumpkin or was it It a... was a plastic pumpkin. Okay. So, right. you know, we can reuse it. Yeah. It's only a couple of dollars, but it's just like, why? Well, I was to carry the candy. Yeah. Actually, I think they're pretty uh, they carried the whole candy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you should <laughs> applaud the ingenuity of the trick-or-treaters. Unless it was one kid who took the thing and all of the candy. Yeah. Maybe right. their bag was wet from the store. Maybe it was three or four. I come from a very big family, lots of siblings. Maybe it was a whole family kids. went together. I, I'll, a lot I'll of bring kids. it back later. Don't worry. Yes. Right. Do you have it? Yeah, wouldn't it be funny if it showed up tomorrow? Yeah, yeah. Um, did you take it? Do you have an outrage or a kudo this week? I have a kudo and a quick outrage. So a kudo is that this week, Governor Raimondo signed a, a domestic violence bill that uh, is a very important uh, provision of this bill, which extends protection to people who are in dating relationships. And it used to be just if you dated in, in the six months prior to the incident, but now it's a whole year and you can get a restraining order somebody for the whole year if you've dated them any time within that year. You'd be amazed at how much of a difference that can make to the safety of victims of do domestic violence. So, you know, New uh, Rhode Island's been uh, really advancing on this issue, trying to really protect people, and I think this is just one more beneficial step. The, the outrage is that as the daughter of a World War II veteran, I don't think you should attack Purple Heart winner, Purple Heart recipients, you know, an immigrant who came to this country, who served his, uh, his country, his brother serves the country, fought uh, in military action, and then testifies about a conversation that he actually heard, and then you have Fox News in particular, and I'm calling them out because they actively did this, which was to malign him, call him a spy. Espionage. Espionage, and it's just... It it's unpatriotic to attack somebody who has served their country so well and then in the name of politics. What do you have to so I have a brief kudos. So uh, last week, the city of Providence rolled out uh, an EMS service that goes to people's homes who are active, frequent users of the 911 system to bring care to them, either when they call or before they even have to call, to keep them from getting on the rescue and going nice. to the ER when they don't have to. This has been done elsewhere in the country, use of advanced placement paramedics and, and, and EMTs. And I think it's, uh, it's, it's forward thinking on the part of the city. They're under a lot of strain. Rhode Island hospitals, uh, Hospital and the other ERs are under a lot of strain. So as the type of innovation that we need to see more of, I'm really happy to see the city do this, and I hope they, hope they roll it out statewide. Excellent. Sounds like a good plan. Okay, the House uh, made it official this week. Professor, let's start with you on the impeachment inquiry. It, it, for weeks, Republicans have been saying, you know, it's not open, it's not open, it's not open. They haven't taken a vote. Now they've taken a vote, and they're going to make it open, and there's, there seems to be still some disagreement within the Republican Party about going forward. What do you see going forward? I know it's a bit of a crystal ball question. Um, in terms of the, does this, uh, I know they want to do it quickly, but they, you know, seem to be peeling back the onion as we go into December, January. They want to try to get it wrapped up quickly, though, right? 
Well, the original strategy was to get it wrapped up before Christmas and then send the case, as they did with Bill Clinton, to the Senate for January to, to go a little bit into February uh, in terms of the trial. So first, McConnell said the trial would be quick. Now the Republicans are realizing the trial will probably be longer, and they won't uh, they won't vote to convict their own president and remove him from uh, their own party president remove him from office. But the problem for the Democrats, there's two problems. The Democrats have a problem is that once you have this trial go on through February, March, you take away attention from the Democratic primary contest, and those nominees will have trouble getting traction. So it hurts the Democrats a little bit in building momentum. It hurts the Republicans because the longer there's the drip, drip, drip. Closer to the election. Closer, well, closer to the election, and also just, you know, there's this pool of people they're competing with, both in the Senate elections and the presidential election, that are independents who voted for Trump before, and will they vote for Trump again? And that's the big question mark. And I think people, I don't think people want to see the president remove most people. They want to see what he did, and they want him to be chastised. They want him to stop doing these things that get him in trouble. They want him to just run the country the way president's supposed to run the country. And I think if he could pull back from that and just do that, I think that, that he has still a really good shot at getting reelected. Yeah, I, I, I would agree that he definitely has a shot at getting reelected. I definitely think that the impeachment, the drip drip, will hurt him. But you know that when it goes to trial, there's going to be theatrics. And the theatrics, I feel like, help Trump because he can paint Washington as incompetent, as not working for you. That's his wheelhouse. And That's how he got in. Right. And part of me feels like he's reveling the opportunity to actually do that. I think he came out with an ad that was like, you know, Mr. Trump, he's no Mr. Nice Guy, but Donald Trump is like who we need. And in he my, ran that during the World Series, pretty high profile. We need a guy to get in there and bang heads, right? Exactly. And that's exactly how he's going to approach the impeachment once he has the opportunity to make his case. You know, what, so uh, what you were saying, Professor, about how this is going to take uh, uh, dist is a distraction from the trail, right, from the Democratic primary, six candidates for president on the Democratic side will be jurors in the trial, so they'll mm -hmm. actually have to be there all the time, hearing evidence, yeah. listening, in, you know, in committee and, oh, I hadn't thought and on that. the floor. So they yeah. were talking this week about how logistically this is something that's really without precedent. Um, but, you know, that, that will, will come and pass. I, I think, down to your point, you know, there, there is a, uh, a question here, and, and having run against the president in the primaries, you know, I, I was with Marco Rubio, um, I could see this every day, and it was very frustrating. And he could take what you thought would be a very negative news cycle and just totally spin it to his advantage. And if he didn't on the point, right, uh, if he didn't totally spin it, he had a way of just distracting everyone and moving the news cycle to the point no one was talking about the bad thing before. And he did this so religiously, so frequently, it was very difficult to pin him down. A bigger reason why he won the, the nomination. And, um, and, and so you know he has that natural ability. And the other thing here is what we are talking about on the substance is something that is rather arcane in terms of legal concepts, uh, whether or not there is the law being broken versus an impeachable offense, which of course is an amorphous concept anyways. It's not like Bill Clinton's case, right? Whether or not impeachment was warranted, the substance of what had happened, the lie, and then you know why he was being asked those questions, people on the street got. I don't think people on the street readily understand what's really at issue here quid pro quo, 
talking to a foreign leader, what can a president really do in an area that they otherwise have fairly wide latitude? There are a lot of open questions. You so, think it's open questions? This is Tony Soprano. I don't I, think people yeah, have I, any I, trouble I, figuring I, out what he did. He called the president of Ukraine, or the president of Ukraine called him, and he said, listen, can you look into this guy who might be running against me for the presidency? I mean, I, and by the way, we're well, holding up your aid. Well, no, look, and if that were on video just like that, I'd say you have a much better case. And whether or not that was the tone or the substance of what he said is what they're trying to get out now. But presidents throughout history have routinely used their very wide-ranging foreign policy powers to exact all sorts of favors from foreign governments. Against their political opponent? Do we know that? I mean, I don't know we, that Richard Nixon did We don't not, not, know, we don't not know that. that, right? Because there's so much but without precedent in this case. that's a hypothetical counterfactual. This is a guy yeah. who did it. And, you know, three or four well, very, you know, civil servants, senior people who've served their country for years, gener you know, 20, 30 years, have said it concerned us so much that we wanted to bring it to attention. So I think this idea that it, it's not in the realm of things that people can understand, whether they care, I, I, I agree with you, but no, I think I, they I can think, get it. I think what is or what is not an impeachable offense based on what actually happened and can be proven to have happened, I don't think regular people, a lot of lawyers I talk to, are going to say, is this a clear-cut case of something that could get someone into jail or get a president impeached? Especially when we don't know what that standard for impeachment really is. We've got 30 seconds. Yeah, the no, last I, word? I really think that the American people understand the issue. I think that what is so alarming to most people in Washington is just how brazen Trump was. I mean, he, he released the transcripts. So for me, it's just like he doesn't necessarily care what he does. Whether it's within the law, outside of the law, he's just going to continue to do it. And that's the question I think that's before us. Okay. That is all the time we have, folks. Thanks for joining us. Wendy and Don and Dan. Don and Dan. Thank you so much for coming, folks. Every week there's something new. We have it all covered. We hope you can join us back here next week as the Lively Experiment continues. Have a great week. Experiment is generously underwritten by. For more than 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS.